I'm here. <laughs> Excited. <laughs> I'm present. That's about, about, I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be our like positive uplifting week of the show. I know. I know. I just am. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into the headspace. I'm, I'll, I'll yeah. get there by the time, by the time it comes around to my story and we get done with all of our introductory BS, I'm sure I'll be ready You'll to be rock there. and roll. Good. Well, let's all hope so. This is going to be a little bit of a Fingers roller coaster. Crossed. Fingers crossed, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it'll be like some good suspense because I think I'm going first. So everyone's yeah. just going to be like, what? Like, is Amelia just going to like, is our head going to explode? Like, <laughs> I'm just silent during your entire story. Uh, <laughs> hi, everybody. I'm Amelia Umpuero. And I'm Scotty Milder. And this is the Weirdest Thing podcast. And so, yeah, this week, I think uh, this is inauguration week. Uh, welcoming Hey-o. in a new president. Yes. And so hopefully we're recording this Sunday night. So uh, we'll see how the next few days go. But hopefully our long national nightmare is over. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Did you get, I got, I got an invitation to the virtual inauguration. Oh, I didn't. Well. They probably like looked at my profile picture and was like, oh, he looks like a fucking red pillar. <laughs> <laughs> fucking neck beard, horror death metal t-shirts. <laughs> All that's missing is the MAGA hat. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I think like maybe at just a view of your profile picture, maybe. But if you were to go look at anything having to do with any of the stuff on your, yeah, it you know, anything that you've posted anywhere, I don't think that it, you'd have to dig very deep to be like, wait, what side is this guy on? Yeah, yeah. I think it would become... I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, apparent pretty quickly. But yeah, so we decided <sighs> since this is the week of the inauguration and hopefully people are in like a little bit of a more hopeful headspace. Yeah. Um, That we're going to try and lighten things up a little this week. So this is our like hopefully happy-ish uplifting episode. Yeah, um, or at least inspiring. Yeah, I mean, so maybe? my story, like I'm hoping my story is not too super long. It's Everyone will figure out pretty quickly this is like you know scotty geek out subject um so i had to really like scotty you don't need to give the whole fucking biography (laughs) but uh you know hopefully it's not super long but i will say it is not like like the black metal story where it's just like pounding your you in the face with like misery and suffering okay i mean there's yeah i i honestly the headspace that i'm in right now I mean, there's a little I, bit I have of, to be like, we need to record on a different day. <laughs> there's a little bit of misery and suffering in this one, but just like the normal amount. Like, yeah. Just like the well, average amount. Yeah. I don't know that it's super possible to have a story about hope and, and inspiration without at least a, a teensy well, bit of need, misery. I mean, you and to, You need some circumstances in, to overcome. and Yeah. You need, you need to like you know wallow in the shit for a little bit before you can get to the light or whatever yeah yeah which is kind of what what the story is so i'm gonna tell the story of the publication of the novel carrie and essentially (laughs) how stephen king's wife is responsible for his entire career okay so hit me with it so as anyone knows i'm a huge Stephen King fan. So this was actually really challenging for me. Cause like I said, I was like, Oh, this is like a, be a nice, light, easy story. And then I just 
like did a deep dive into all the stuff that I've read a million times and right like I was like oh this is gonna be like 20 pages of notes and we'll be here this will be like an eight part episode and no one needs that <laughs> so um hopefully I kind of condensed it down to something reasonable so my sources for this obviously Wikipedia although not that much this time because it's okay. a subject I already know quite a bit about one of my favorite books it's called the Stephen King Companion it's by a guy named George Beam kind of like an overview of his career a bit of a biography obviously had to take from his own memoir on writing a memoir of the craft okay and then a little bit from the afterword for salem's lot and for his anthology skeleton crew so okay. there we go so just a little bit of a bi- biography of stephen king for those of you guys who don't know that much about him like i'm sure everyone knows horror author massive best-selling writer lives up in the backwoods of maine somewhere mm-hmm. i think that's you know sort of what most people know and is he from that area? Like, did mm-hmm. he grow up there? Okay. Well, sort of. Yes and no. And okay. I'll get into it. So okay. uh, he was born in Portland, Maine on September 21st, 1947. He has an older brother, David King, who from everything I've ever read about him, it sounds like Dave King is kind of a child prodigy. Like, okay. I think he graduated high school at like 14 or something. Or Whoa. Like, yeah. And Stephen King has, in on writing, he has lots of great stories about how Dave, who's two years older than him, would like, you know, basically was kind of too smart for his own good. He was always <laughs> like, here, Steve, let's try this science experiment and you're going to be my guinea pig. And then like Stephen King gets electrocuted or falls off a roof or, you know, something like that. <laughs> That sounds um, about right, I think, for older yeah. brothers. Yeah, one exact, especially that age, like two yeah. years older. It's like the yeah. perfect age. <laughs> they were born to, uh, I believe, you, can, you guys can fact check me on this. I think I've read the David King, the, his older brother was adopted, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Oh, okay. Um, but I know Stephen was born, his mother's Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, uh, okay. maiden name Pillsbury. And then his father was Donald Edwin King, born Donald Edwin Pollock, but for some reason changed his name to King as an, as an adult. Interesting. And from everything I've ever read about his father, his father was kind of a, a shifty character, worked mm. as a merchant marine for a while, was a traveling salesman. Um, Stephen King actually writes him into a little cameo in the stand. If it, in the <laughs> Who is it? I feel like I'm yeah. in the stand. I feel <laughs> I like everybody is in the stand. Yeah. If anyone remembers the uh, Mother Abigail chapter where she uh, meets a vacuum cleaner salesman, that is actually Stephen King's father. So, okay. but Donald abandoned the family when Stephen King was two. Mm. Uh, just and the story is, I think it's sort of the proverbial went out for a pack of cigarettes, never came back kind of thing. How the fuck do you do that? I don't know. I mean, uh, like, okay, I have to just press pause on on your story for just a second okay. because <laughs> because I don't know how you do that. Like, how do you just walk away from? your partner, let alone your children. Two children, like toddler children. Yeah, and not have the guts to be like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to peace out. I that, mean, I, like, it, you know, I get it. I get that you want to get out of a relationship or whatever. I'm not asking that. I'm asking how you can be like, I'm going to the store for a pack of cigarettes mm-hmm. and then just never come back. Just never come back. And like, yeah. and as far as I know, Stephen King has no idea what happened to him. No one knows what happened to him. Just kind of vanished into the ether. I've read theories where like he must have run off and rejoined the Merchant Marines or whatever. But everything I've ever read, I don't have anything written down, but everything I've ever read from Stephen King is he doesn't, he's doesn't have a lot of interest in trying to figure out what happened to his dad he's yeah i mean the he, he doesn't say this outright but the tone is a little fuck that guy and yeah like, fair enough you know yeah. Yeah. um but 
yeah, so Donald King took off, abandoned the family, left Nellie as a single mother, not much education. Mm. So she moved with the kids all over New England and then moved to Wisconsin, moved to Chicago to actually, his family actually tried to help her out uh, because even they didn't know where he was. So Did he he die? I mean, like... Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's almost like out of a Stephen King story, like just yeah. walked off and vanished. Okay. You know, keep in mind, this would have been like 1949, 1950, where it's probably a little easier mm. to do that than today. Yeah. But yeah, so they lived in Wisconsin, Chicago, Indiana, and then they came back to New England. I think they lived in New Hampshire for a while and then finally settled down back in Maine. So here's a quote. This is from On Writing. He says, I lived an odd herky-jerky childhood raised by a single parent who moved around a lot in my earliest years and who, I'm not completely sure of this, may have farmed my brother and me out to one of her sisters for a while because she was economically or emotionally unable to cope with us for a time. Mm. Perhaps she was only chasing our father who piled up all sorts of bills and then did a run out when I was two and my brother was four. If so, she never succeeded in finding him. My mom, Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, was one of America's early liberated women, but not by choice. Oh. Yeah. But he's really talked about how she just hit the ground scrambling and just worked her ass off to provide for these kids. Of course. And one thing he has always credited his mother with, you know, he always talks about his mom as this very stern New England kind of no bullshit, you know, take no guff kind of woman. But she was also always very supportive of his writing. Um, (laughs) And he tells a story in the afterward of Salem's Lot where, you know, he would always ask, his mom to bring him books home from the library or from the store, Mm. whether they be comic books or like adventure novels or whatever. And his mom was always like, I don't know why you want to read that. That's trash, but she'd still bring it for him. him. And so he talks about how like his mom kind of divided things into like different levels of trash. Okay. And there was like, you know, some things she wouldn't allow him to read, things that were like too racy. She would be like, that's bad trash. You can't read that. That's bad trash. Okay. But one of the books she brought him was Dracula. And she was mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you'll like it. It looks like it's a bunch of letters. It's probably trash. Okay. Um, but he was like, but he fell in love with it. And of course, if anyone knows anything about Salem's Lot, it's kind of his attempt to do, almost do a retelling of Dracula. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a a couple minutes. But so he says, so this was his quote from that uh, afterward to Salem's Lot, where he says, the woman who brought me Dracula from the Stratford Public Library never saw Salem's Lot. By the time the first draft was completed, she was too ill to read much. She uh, actually died of cancer. And if anyone wants to read, sorry, this is Scotty breaking in with an aside. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, one of the most heartbreaking short stories you'll ever read. It's called The Woman in the Room. And it's, I believe, in his Night Shift collection. And it's basically mm-hmm. the story of his mother dying of cancer. Okay. To go back to what he says, by the, first time, by the time the first draft was completed, she was too ill to read much. She who read with such enjoyment over the course of her life, and by the time it was published, she was dead. He's talking about Salem's Lot. If she had read it, I like to think she would have finished the last hundred pages in one of her marathon chain-smoking readathons, then laughed, put it aside, not without some affection, and pronounced it trash. But maybe not bad trash. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, okay. I just, I feel like, okay, this might also be why I'm in a weird spot. I might be a little emotional, so it's completely possible that I will cry at you, during your story, my okay. story, just in general. Uh, so just, well, I'll try to be quiet if I do. <laughs> like I'll I try said, to muffle my sobs. This is going to be a roller coaster. Okay, um, great. And there are a couple things in this story, I will admit, get me pretty choked up too. 
And that that okay. quote, the maybe not bad trash, that one always kind of gets me. Always gets yeah. a little bit of a lump in the throat. Yeah. What's interesting, this is just a little aside, there's this theme that is a recurrent theme in Stephen King's book about these domineering, awful mothers. I mean, you have Carrie White's mom and Carrie. Yeah. And, and people are like, where the hell does that come from? And he is, I think, kind of said, he's like, I don't know, because that wasn't my mom. He was like, she was <laughs> tough. She was tough as nails, but she wasn't this evil mother character that sort of pops up a lot. Interesting. So a couple things just to establish like where Stephen King kind of developed his interest in horror. One story that he has kind of dismissed as being terribly significant because he doesn't remember it personally. Mm -hmm. But apparently when he was really young, I think like five or six, this is back when like you just let kids wander the world. Yeah. Toddlers. (laughs) He and a friend uh, went out to play and then he came home later, a couple hours later, just white as a sheet, wouldn't talk obviously in shock nobody knew where the other kid was turned out he had actually watched his his friend get struck and killed by a train <gasps> um so of course everyone's like well this is why stephen king's way is this is why he writes what he does and he's like i don't know he's like i don't remember it this is just a story my mother told me i have no memory of it but it is interesting read stephen king's there's lots of dead kids and specifically mm-hmm. the novella the body which is the basis for stand by me Ugh, uh, such this, a good movie you can see where he's pulling from this story. Another story, less horrifying, is I think this is back when he was living in Maine. He went up into his aunt's attic, his aunt, or it might have been his grandparents' attic, um, because when they moved back to Maine, they moved so that his mother could take care of her elderly parents. Mm. She kind of became their primary caregiver. Um, So he was crawling around the attic and he found a box of books. And they were a box of books that were actually left behind by his father, who apparently was a big horror and sci-fi fan. And so this is where Stephen King discovered H.P. Lovecraft and all these, you know, classic pulp writers. He tells this story in his book, Dance Macabre, and, you know, kind of, you know, was, he fell in love with the genre, but also you got to imagine there's a little bit of like connecting to this absent father. You yeah. Know? So they moved back to Durham, Maine when he was 11 uh, this is when his mother was taking care of her elderly parents, who I think lived right next door. And I've been to Durham, Maine. I've done mm-hmm. this whole, like, Stephen King tour of Maine. Mm-hmm. Durham is fucking tiny. Like, it's, like, rural backwood. Like, even now, mm. this would have been 2013, I think. It is, like, rural, rural, rural <laughs> America. Okay, okay. So, small town kid. And I think he, like, you know, they, they had an outhouse, like, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived in Durham until he w- eventually went off to college. So a couple things, just little quick little stories that I just like because I relate to these. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the type of kid I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he was in grade school, you know, he and his friends would go to movies. This was kind of the era where like, you know, the big bug movies and like the Roger Corman movies were very popular. He'd watch the movies and be like, I could do better than that. Then he'd go home and write a novelization. So he wrote like quickie little novelizations of The Pit and the Pendulum and Invasion mm-hmm. of the Star Creatures and a couple other like popular movies of the time mm-hmm. um, where he would like change details. He would write his friends into the story where they were fighting <laughs> the aliens or whatever. Okay. And then he would print them out and sell them on the playground for a quarter apiece. And then he got caught and they made him give the money back. <laughs> but Why? I, I don't know. That's questionable. That's Yeah. <laughs> but that's like the type of shit that I, I kind of, I never sold, I never like wrote stuff and then sold them on the playground, but I definitely would like, when I was like six, seven years old, I would novelize movies mm, okay. I had watched, or I would rewrite them and put my friends in them, et cetera. Um, he ended up, when he got to high school, he became the editor of the high school paper, but hated it. 
and he, he, I think he said he was like, well, I managed to put one issue out. But instead of actually doing the high school paper he was supposed to, he created his own underground high school paper called The Village Vomit. Um, of course. And okay. the tagline being, all the shit that will stick. Okay. And so he reported school gossip, and then he made up, like, funny stories about the faculty and would use their, like, really offensive nicknames that their students would use for them and then like passed it out to the school with his name everything on it like was wow <laughs> so he got in big trouble for that apparently okay. one of the teachers i think he said she was like the home ec teacher or something mm-hmm. um but she was like deeply deeply offended and hurt so she demanded that he be suspended and he ended up sort of negotiating his way into like, well, don't suspend me, but I'll give you like a formal apology. So he had to get up in front of her class and like formally apologize to her. Okay. And he kind of said, he was like, yeah, it was pretty shitty. I probably shouldn't have done that. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, maybe. But then a couple years later, she still vetoed his appointment to the National Honor Society. (laughs) Uh, She's still salty about it. Still salty because she said they don't need boys of quote his type. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Stephen King graduated from Lisbon Falls High School in 1966 and then attended the University of Maine at Orono, which um, Orono is like kind of right outside of Bangor. It's like, okay. I think, kind of right north of Bangor. Okay. And then Durham's a little bit kind of south and west, I think. Okay. So he went in 1966, graduated in 1970. So he was there through the heart of like the anti-war movement. So yeah. he's talked about how he went from being like a Goldwater Republican to like fucking Beardo hippie by the time he left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yo, big transformation. But while he was there, he met a young woman named Tabitha Spruce outside the school library in 1969. I think she was, a, he was a senior and she was a sophomore. So here's his quote about meeting Tabitha Spruce. He says, during the summer of 1969, I got a work-study job at the University of Maine Library. That was a season both fair and foul. In Vietnam, Nixon was executing his plan to end the war, which seemed to consist of bombing most of Southeast Asia into kibbles and bits. Meet the new boss, the who sang, same as the old boss. Eugene McCarthy was concentrating on his poetry, and happy hippies wore bell-bottom pants and t-shirts that said things like, killing for peace is like fucking for chastity. I had a great set of mutton-chop sideburns. Credence Clearwater Revival was singing Green River, and Kenny Rogers was still with the first edition. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were dead, but Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison were still alive and making music. Mm. I was staying just off campus, seven bucks a week, one change of sheets included. Men had landed on the moon, and I had landed on the Dean's List, Miracles and Wonders Abounded. (laughs) One day in late June of that summer, a bunch of us library guys had lunch on the grass behind the university bookstore. Sitting between Paolo Silva and Eddie Marsh was a trim girl with a raucous laugh, red-tinted hair, and the prettiest legs I'd ever seen, well displayed beneath a short yellow skirt. She was carrying a copy of Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. I hadn't run across her in the library, and I didn't believe a college student could utter such a wonderful, unafraid laugh. Also, heavy reading or no heavy reading, she swore like a mill worker instead of a co-ed. And he says, having been a mill worker, I was qualified to judge. (laughs) Her name was Tabitha Spruce. We got married a year and a half later. We're still married, and she has never let me forget that the first time I met her, I thought she was Eddie Marsh's towny girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's a little bit about Tabitha Spruce King. Okay. So Tabitha Jane Spruce was born March 24th, 1949 in Old Town, Maine, which mm-hmm. is also, I think, kind of north of Bangor. She also was attending University of Maine, where she was studying history and poetry. She and Stephen King married on January 7th, 1971, after their first child was born. 
<gasps> just a ooh, scandal for the late 60s. Really? No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's important to point out about Tabitha King. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to give her work the due that it, it deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's an accomplished novelist herself. Mm. She's nowhere near as well known, obviously. She has sort of talked about it. She has said, you know, obviously Steve's career, publishing career is like a river. Mine's like a faucet. <laughs> I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. So she she's talked about it. She has said, um, or what? what? I lost my did the faucet quote. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. And then... Sorry, I coughed and then I fucked it up. Yeah, you totally <laughs> fucked it up. So it, she has talked about how people ask, like, how does she feel being kind of in the shadow of her husband? And she's like, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't compete with that. Like, nobody expected that. We didn't. He right. certainly didn't expect that. Yeah. So she's talked about how his publishing career is like a river and hers is more like a faucet Mm. she's also nowhere near as prolific as him i think she has eight novels so probably her most well-known one is which i've read it's called small world it's sort of like a really dark feminist take on the incredible shrinking man oh Um, she's also got a book called survivor which i've read um and then one i really want to read i think it's her last published thing from 2006 she completed a novel called Candles Burning by a guy named Michael McDowell, who's a pretty well-known horror novelist, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called The Amulet, another one called The Elementals. He's probably most well-known as the screenwriter for Beetlejuice. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and he died before he could finish this book, so she came on and actually finished it. Interesting. So a couple things about her. Like, it's been a long time since I've read her, but mm-hmm. I do, she's a very good writer. Like, she really deserves kind of her own... Mm-hmm. do it's not super surprising to me though that she's not as popular as steve mm-hmm. Stephen king because she's a much more like literary writer okay like i mean there's elements of like suspense writing or kind of gothic or almost like southern gothic kind of vibe mm-hmm. but her, just her voice is much more lyrical much more poetic Mm. um and she's she's not identified with a genre the way he is okay so you know she's one of those more i think she would still have a career it would be a a small kind of literary writing career she's also well respected as a poet as well okay so so harlan ellison the writer harlan ellison said about her writing he said there's a quality of kindness in her work that is missing from stevens there are a number of women writers i read specifically because there's a quality of humanity a kindness in their work Tabby's stuff is quite different from Stevens and in some ways is far more mature. I mean, the only thing I'll say about that is like Harlan Ellison, like he means well, but it's like, oh, women are so much kinder. (laughs) Okay, old man. And then Douglas E. Winter, who's a pretty well-respected horror critic and editor and friend of both Stephen and Tabby Kings. He said, there's an aspect to her work in which she's a very strong regional writer. And I say that in a complimentary sense. We're talking about Faulkner, O'Connor, or Steinbeck. Mm, There's a regional power in her books. In other words, part of the power of her fiction is its setting, its people. It is a peculiar kind of setting. Now, on the other hand, I don't think that limits her powers as it does some regional writers. I think she's also very capable of communicating the peculiarities of that region to outsiders like me. So, yeah, just want to put it out there. Like, reading this, I was like, I got to go back and reread some of her stuff. Because I remember Mm -hmm. really liking Small World, and I remember really liking Survivor. But it's probably been a couple decades since Mm -hmm. I read Mm -hmm. anything by her. But, yeah, go check her out. Her stuff's out there. You can find it on, on, in bookstores, on Amazon, all the good places. So. In bookstores. 
in bookstores. Well, I think find I'm it, saying find I'm it saying, in bookstores. I'm saying on Amazon because I think her stuff you're more likely to be able to find as ebooks right now. Because oh. I think her stuff, okay. a lot of her stuff was out of print for a long time. Oh, okay. Print fiction. So unless you want, like you can find like old used paperbacks, but I do think they've re-released a lot of her stuff in ebook. Okay. So, so maybe, I don't All know, right. Barnes and Noble Nook or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's an app too for library, like there's a, a library app for ebooks. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Which I wish I sh- I'd need to do. So fuck Jeff Bezos. That's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's uh, get to the writing of Carrie and kind of okay. uh, like build up to that. Okay. So they meet, they fall in love. He graduates. She gets pregnant in her senior year. And so, you know, he has to figure out what the fuck he's going to do. Mm-hmm. He graduated with a bachelor's in English and a teacher certificate, but there were no teaching positions. He couldn't find any teaching positions. And since he had this pregnant fiance, he didn't want to like take off to look for better opportunities. Mm-hmm. So he ended up, you know, taking jobs like he had to pump gas for a while. Mm-hmm. And then he finally got a job working for a buck sixty an hour at the New Franklin Laundry, which was later the basis for his short story, The Mingler, if anyone's ever read that. Okay. Meanwhile, he's still writing, but he's just not getting very far. So Carrie is actually, it's a little unclear to me because I've read a couple different things. It's either his fourth or his fifth novel, even though it was his first one that was published. Oh, okay. Okay. So before that, he wrote a book called, when he was in high school, he wrote a book called Getting It On, which later was retitled Rage. That was the first published Bachman book, if anyone knows about the Bachman books. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then uh, when he was a sophomore in college, he wrote a book called The Long Walk, also a Bachman book. Later came out as a Bachman book. And then uh, The Running Man, which was the third Bachman book. Okay. Can I ask a question real fast? Mm-hmm. Why the Bachman Noom de Plum? Like, why why do that? So, so he had these early, so it really started, he had these earlier novels that he had written pre-carry that he was like, he was like, I've kind of outgrown these. These are, like, I'm a better writer than these, but they're still pretty mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And he kind of wanted to do this experiment because this was when his career sort of post The Shining, which is, I want to say, 77. Mm-hmm that's when his career just exploded and he became a phenomenon. Okay. He was like, I wonder if I could duplicate this. So he took these older books and like very secretly put them out as just like paperback, like airport read kind of books just to see. And, and the Bachman books actually did develop a following. They were never as popular as Stephen King's Mm -hmm. stuff, like with his own name. And then he kind of fucked up because he basically published a Stephen King novel as a Bachman book in the mid eighties, a book called thinner. And it was so obviously a Stephen King book (laughs) that people Uh were like, wait a minute and kind of made the connection. So someone went and investigated and kind of exposed the whole thing. Interesting. Okay. He actually wrote, and this is a total aside, but he actually wrote a novel in, I want to say 1989 called The Dark Half, which Mm -hmm. is basically the story about the Richard Bachman pen name being exposed. But what if Richard Bachman was pissed about being exposed and came after Stephen King? Basically. <laughs> okay. It's actually a really good book. It's a really uh-huh. good book. But you can, you read it and you can tell, ooh, he was pissed. Yeah. Was real pissed. Because he just he just takes out terrible vengeance on the people who exposed him <laughs> in that book. <laughs> God bless. He also around that time wrote a book called Blaze, okay. which I think was either written right before or right after Carrie. Okay. It also was published as a Bachman book 
in 2007. At this point, everyone knew Stephen King was 2007, so it was more of like a gimmick. So he was like, he had this whole thing about like, Richard's widow contacted me and and she (laughs) found this manuscript. And so I remember. But it's like, Steve, everyone that, like, everyone's heard the story about this book that was this book, Blaze, that you never published. Like, I had known about it for 15 years before it came out. But that came out in 2007. And then, so after writing The Running Man, which later, of course, became the basis for one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of all time, Mm -hmm. he sat down to write Carrie. Okay. So the way Carrie came about, I guess he and his brother David, his brother Dave got him a job because, you know, he did eventually get a teaching job. He started uh, teaching for $6,400 a year at Hamptons Academy, which was, I think, kind of a private school Uh in the area, but it was not still not very well paying. They weren't doing much better. And of course, Summers still needed a job during the summer. So he's still working at the laundry during the summers. Okay. And Tabby, meanwhile, she graduated college, had the baby. She started working at Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. Um, and so they're just barely scraping by. And Dave King, his brother, got him the, or got the two of them a job cleaning out the bathrooms and the locker rooms at uh, a local high school. Okay. So this was Stephen King's first time going into a girl's locker room. And he was like flummoxed by what he saw there, (laughs) specifically by the tampon dispensers. He was like, what is this? Okay. And so Dave was like, that's where the girls get the sanitary napkins. He was like, oh, light bulb goes off. Mm-hmm. So he also had been criticized when he was in college. I think in one of his like writing workshops by like another student who was a, a young woman mm-hmm. who basically was like, you just write this like macho male shit. You can't write women. Mm. So he was like, I'm going to take this as a challenge. So he sits down to write Carrie and immediately hates it. Immediately is just like, nope. And at this point, he'd been publishing for a while. He'd been publishing short stories. Mm -hmm. A lot of these short stories are now considered classics. He was kind of publishing them in like sort of cheesecakey porno mags. Uh, Oh, okay. Like men's (laughs) magazines, quote unquote. I don't think they were like super hardcore porn, but like magazines like Cavalier, one called Adam, one called Ubris. Um and they would all pay on publication and pay a hundred, a couple hundred bucks. And he's talked about, he's like, you know, the checks always sort of came right in time where like the kid had an ear infection and needed to go get some penicillin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a few of the <clears throat> stories that people recognize, a lot of these are collected in night shift. Mm, um, okay. So the story, I am the doorway, uh, another one, night surf, uh, which later became the basis for the stand. Okay. The story of the boogeyman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's that one story. Of his, that story creeps me the fuck out. Yeah, I think he wrote that. He was in college when he wrote that. I think. Yeah, uh, the Mangler, which I mentioned, mm-hmm. a short story called Trucks, which later became the basis for the movie Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Woo! Which is a hell of a ride. Yeah, I want to go watch Maximum Overdrive right now. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Even like the promo stuff that he's doing, because he was like coked out of his mind, right? Because yeah. he directed that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was just, woo. And it is, it is a, if you've never seen Maximum Overdrive, it's batshit crazy. Yeah. But what's crazy is you read Trucks, which is plot-wise very similar. Trucks is genuinely scary. Who's in Maximum Overdrive? Uh, Emilio Estevez. Okay, that's what I thought. Some other people I don't remember. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little, uh, I won't go too long on this, but there's a fun story about his short story, The Raft, which he later published in Skeleton Crew. It was another one of these stories he published at around this time. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote it in uh, 1968. It was called The Float. Mm-hmm. And then he sold it to this Adam magazine. And he says, which, like most of the girly magazines, paid not on acceptance but on publication. The amount promised was $250. In the spring of 1970, while creeping home in my white Ford station wagon from the University Motor Inn at 1230 in the morning, I ran over a number of traffic cones, which were guarding a crosswalk that had been painted that day. The paint had dried, but no one had bothered to take the cones in when it got dark. One of them bounced up and knocked my muffler loose from the rotted remains of my tailpipe. I was immediately suffused with the sort of towering, righteous rage which only drunk undergraduates can feel. I decided to circle the town of Orono, picking up traffic cones. I would leave them all in front of the police station the next morning with a note saying that I had saved numerous mufflers and exhaust systems from extinction and ought to get a medal. I got about 150 before blue lights started to swirl around in the rearview mirror. <laughs> I will never forget the Orono cop turning to me after a long, long look into the back of my station wagon and asking, son, are those traffic cones yours? <laughs> um, so he tells this story. This is not from Skeleton Crew where you know, he got busted and he was supposed to pay a $250 fine. And if he didn't come up with the money, he was going to go to jail. But he, you know, he didn't have the money at the time. Mm-hmm. But then his payment for the float from Adam Magazine showed up three days later. Like Ooh. right in time, cashed it, got out. But he said it's weird because since they only paid on publication, he assumed the story must have been published. But they never sent him a copy. He was never able to find a copy. He looked on newsstands. And then he lost the original manuscript. So he rewrote it in 1982 as The Raft. And if anyone's seen the movie Creep Show 2, it's uh, one of the episodes of Creep Show 2 is based on The Raft. And he says, anyway, if anyone out there has ever seen The Float, even if someone has a copy, could you send me a Xerox copy or something? Even a postcard <laughs> confirming the fact that I'm not crazy? <laughs> what, is, what is that story about? It's a bunch of like teenagers go... To a, is it they go to a lake? They go to a lake and they're like out on a boat and then this like oozy blob kind yep. of surrounds mm-hmm. them. Yep, know that one too. Okay. Yeah, it's another one that's considered one of his classics. Okay. Um, so he's publishing all these short stories. He's trying to write these novels and he's actually getting interest in the novels, you know, the okay. running man rage and the long walk sidebar about rage real quick is that book. He actually pulled that out of publication. You can't get that anymore really? because it has been linked to a number of school shootings. <gasps> it's about oh, a school shooting. Oh, no. Okay. And he finally got to a point. He was like, I don't want this out there. So, I mean, like I have it because I have like an old used copy of the Bachman books, right? Like, anthology, but um, you can't like it's not supposed to be available anymore. Oh, interesting. And it's not a great book, to be mm. honest. I mean, you can tell okay. he wrote it in high school. The Long Walk is fucking excellent. Like that's actually one of my favorites. But so he's getting interest in these books, specifically from Doubleday uh, publishers, mm-hmm. and 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 a guy at Doubleday, an editor at Doubleday named uh, Bill Thompson, who he had kind of become friends with. And Bill Thompson in particular really tried to get The Long Walk published. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it would go up to the editorial board of the publishing company, and they'd be like, we can't sell this. It's too bleak. It's not commercial, etc. So he's just kept having these near misses. Meanwhile, he and, you know, he finally gets his job teaching at Hampton Academy, okay. but he's still having to work in the laundry room, you know, selling these stories 
every so often. Tabby's working the Dunkin' Donuts. And she says about that time, she says, I was devastated to get out of college and find that no one wanted to hire me. I managed to work (sighs) all the way through college and make money, only to discover suddenly that my BA was worth absolutely nothing. Yeah. Tabby, not much has changed. I know, right? (laughs) Like, take it from me. (laughs) Yeah. Not much has changed. Well, and you got to also think, you know, he had an English degree with at least a teaching certificate, but I think she had like a history and degree with like poetry. And, poetry. Yeah. and they're yeah. in like the outskirts of Bangor or Maine. Ugh, so it's like, yeah, you know. So around this time, they moved into a trailer home in Herman, Maine. Stephen King's talked about how he was struggling to write because the teaching was actually really draining for him. Mm-hmm. And this, I read this and I, I felt this pretty hard where he says, for the first time in my life, writing was hard. The problem was the teaching. I liked my co-workers and I loved the kids. Even the Beavis and Butthead types and living with English could be interesting. But by most Friday afternoons, I felt as if I'd spent the week with jumper cables clamped to my brain. If I ever came close to despairing about my future as a writer, it was then. And I can say as a teacher who teaches writing at a community mm-hmm. college, like I feel that pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Like I love teaching. I love my students. But man, it can really suck it out of you when you're trying to tap into your own creativity. Yeah. It's it's a tricky, tricky balance. And he's married. He's got a kid. You Oof, know. Yeah. So he kind of kept trying to quit writing. Okay. And Tabby just kind of wouldn't let him. So he would <laughs> he would sit in the laundry room of their they lived in this like double wide trailer in Herman, Maine, which he later pissed off the people of Herman, Maine, where he gave a Playboy interview and said it was the asshole of the or he said, if it's not the asshole of the world, it's within farting distance. And they were like, well, we're, we're canceling our Stephen King celebration day. And he was like, okay. Um, because he was, <laughs> like, he was like, I had a bad time there. And you people were assholes to me. And I like, whatever with your Stephen King day. <laughs> I think later he wow. was like, I really okay. do owe them an apology. Like, it's not the asshole of the world. It's more like the armpit of the world. I guess that's marginally better than being the asshole of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'd be okay. still... Still tweaking their nose. That was from on writing, yeah. I think. So like the early 2000s. So he's still salty about Herman Maine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he would sit in the laundry room writing. And then Joe was born. Their son Joe was born in 1972. Okay. This, of course, adds to the financial pressure. This is around when Steve is trying to sell The Running Man. Bill Thompson, still a big fan at Doubleday, but still can't get past the editorial board. And so this is around, he, like I said, he was like, you know, I'm just going to quit. Like, I'm just going to focus on my family, focus on teaching, etc. And this is what he says about Tabby. He says, my wife made a crucial difference during those two years I spent teaching at Hampton and washing sheets at New Franklin Laundry during the summer vacation. If she had suggested that the time I spent writing stories on the front porch of our rented house on Pond Street when the laundry room of a rented trailer was wasted time, I think a lot of the heart would have gone out of me. Tabby never voiced a single doubt, however. Her support was a constant, one of the few good things I could take as a given. Whenever I see a first novel dedicated to a wife or a husband, I smile and think there's someone who knows. Writing is a lonely job. Having someone who believes in you makes a lot of difference. They don't have to make speeches. Just believing is usually enough. Uh, Yeah. So that's from on writing. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, Tabby is still writing. She, and he said she was kind of trying to write these like teenage confession type stories where I think what was the title of one of them was like, she's too pretty to be a virgin or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, and he was like, yeah, she got bored with that shit real quick. 
I want to read that so bad. She's too pretty to be a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, she's writing, he's writing, he's publishing in these men's magazines, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're in like pretty financially desperate straits at this point. Mm-hmm. And this is around when he finally starts writing Carrie. You know, he had he had gone on this job, was had his mind blown by the sight of a tampon machine. Um, <laughs> I I I mean, he is not the first, nor will he be the last, to be flummoxed by menstruation. So, well, that's gonna come up here again in a second. Yep. Okay. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> so he sat down to write Carrie, thinking it was going to be another short story for Cavalier. He really wanted to explore, like, teenage cruelty. Because mm. um, I think when he saw it, when he discovered the existence of a tampon machine in the locker room, I think he has said, like, the, you know, the famous plug it up, plug it up scene from Carrie mm-hmm. just came right from that. So he sat down to write, and that's the first chapter of Carrie, which he started writing, and then immediately threw it away. I think he wrote three pages. He hated it. He said, I had four problems with what I'd written. First and least important was the fact that the story didn't move me emotionally. Second and slightly more important was the fact that I didn't much like the lead character. Carrie White seemed thick and passive, a ready-made victim. The other girls were chucking tampons and sanitary napkins at her, chanting, plug it up, plug it up, and I just didn't care. Third, and more important still, was not feeling at home with either the surroundings or my all-girl cast of supporting characters. I had landed on Planet Female, and one sortie into the girls' locker room at Brunswick High School years before wasn't much help in navigating there. So he threw it away, crumpled him up, threw him in the trash can, moving on. How did he describe Carrie? Thick and what? Thick and passive. And Oof. I mean, when you read the book, it kind of is. Yeah. Well, because the character of Carrie was based on two girls that he grew up with. Oh, um, that hurts even more. Just yeah. thick and passive is... Yeah. Well, and he's, and I think he's even admitted where he's like, I wasn't any nicer to those girls than any of the other kids. Yeah. Um, But they, you know, stuck in his head. So it all just kind of came together into the story, but he was hating it. He just wasn't feeling it at all. Mm -hmm. So he goes to work, comes home, and he finds that Tabby has dug the pages out of the trash can and has read them. This is what he had to say about that. He says, the next night when I came home from school, Tabby had the pages. She had spied them while emptying my wastebasket, had shaken the cigarette ashes off the crumpled balls of paper, smoothed them out, and sat down to read them. She wanted me to go on with it, she said. She wanted to know the rest of the story. I told her I didn't know jack shit about high school girls. She said she'd help me with that part. She had her chin tilted down and was smiling in that severely cute way of hers. You've got something here, she said. I really think you do. Mm. So it was like, okay. Um, Fine. So he kept working on it. She helped him. He said one thing she pointed out is that he had written that the tampon dispensers in this locker room were coin-operated. And she was like, they're not going to be coin-operated in the high school. She was like, because the school administration doesn't like the idea of girls walking around with blood all over their skirts just because they happen to come to school short a quarter that day. Yeah. So it's like little insights like that. But this is the start of Tabby really being like his. And he has said to this day, she is his first editor. She's his first reader on everything he does. <sighs> The story ballooned, you know, originally was supposed to be this short story for Cavalier, mm-hmm. uh, but it ballooned into a novel. Still didn't like it very much. He said, my considered opinion was that I had written the world's all-time loser. The only thing I could say about Carrie was that it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that for some crazy reason, my wife liked it better than anything I'd written before. <laughs> 
Carrie's an interesting book because mm-hmm. it's like you can tell when you read it, particularly knowing it was kind of the transition book between these earlier Bachman books, like The Long Walk and The Running Man, mm-hmm. and then the later sort of Stephen King proper books like Salem's Lot. It feels like an immature book. Like it feels kind of like a first novel, mm-hmm. but there is something to it. Like there, and there is something in that opening scene, the plug it up scene. Like there's a reason why that's so infamous. Yeah. So he really did tap into something with that book. And I have to think like, from what he says, you got to give Tabby like a ton of credit for that, for helping yeah. him through that. Yeah. Well, we are not always the best arbiters of our own work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So he submitted the book to Bill Thompson again at Doubleday, fully expecting another rejection. But instead of a rejection, he hears back from Bill Thompson who says, hey, would you mind revising the last quarter of the book and let me try again? Um, okay. and, and, he, and Stephen King said, he was like, I knew that last quarter wasn't any good anyway. He says, I knew I rushed through the end of it. Mm. Um, so he was like, okay. So he sat down and he has credited, he said, aside from Tabby's help on the book, he gives Bill Thompson a ton of credit for making the book publishable. He says, it was as if he had seen the corner of a treasure chest protruding from the sand and had unerringly driven stakes at the probable boundaries of the buried mass. Mm. So revised the book, mm-hmm. sent it back to Bill Thompson, who then went ahead and recommended it for publication, uh, sent it up to the editorial board. And at that point, he, he gets a hold of Stephen King and is like, why don't you come down to New York and let's meet? They'd never actually met before. Oh, okay. And Stephen King's told this story a bunch of times where he, like, in this kind of rumpled, cheap teacher's suit, like, gets on a bus down to New York, didn't have money for a cab fare, so I had to, like, walk across Manhattan to meet up with Bill Thompson for lunch and then apparently got real drunk at lunch. (laughs) (laughs) That's my worst nightmare. Yeah. It's like like going to a really important meeting and, like, letting my hand get away from me and, and getting drunk. I mean, I think he said later he realized, like, when he left, he had, like, bits of food in his beard and <laughs> stuff. Oh, God! Oh! <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, Bill Thompson was, like, he really saw something in this year. Because I think at the time, Stephen King would have been, like, 24, 25, something wow. like that. Like, super young. Wow. He saw something in this kid. Stephen King was still very unconvinced that the book would be published. I mean, he had mm. had these close calls before, but Bill Thompson's telling him, no, I think it's like 60, 40 in favor that it's going to be published. Just got to get it past the editorial board. And then Bill Thompson said he knew that they were home free when one of the people on the editorial board came up to him and said, wow, that book's a cooker, quote, quote unquote. Wow. So they agreed to publish it. The Kings were so like financially destitute at the time. Mm. They had actually had to have the phone taken out of their trailer. They're still in Herman, Maine. So Bill Thompson couldn't call them. So he had to send a message by telegram. Um, And the message read, bingo, carry officially a double day book, $2,500 against royalties. Call for glorious details. Congratulations. Love. The future lies ahead. (laughs) Maybe give you a minute. (laughs) Amelia's covering uh, her eyes. <laughs> it's just, uh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So he said, this is what Stephen King says. He says, Tabby called me during my free period at school. I went up to the office to take the call, aware that it was necessary for her to go next door to make the call and quite sure that one of two things had happened. Either Doubleday had decided to publish Carrie or one of the kids had fallen down the front steps of the trailer and fractured his or her skull. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then Stephen King's sort of best childhood friend, a guy named Chris Chesley. I think Tabby also called him. So he came over and actually beat <laughs> Steve there. So this is what he says. He says, Steve was living in Herman then and I was again. Oh, I guess he was living with him. So he says, Steve was living in Herman then and I was again boarding with him. I would hitchhike from Herman to Orono and back again at the end of my school day. So one day I hitchhiked home and I came down this little dirt road that his house was on. And I had just gotten in the yard when Tabby ran out the front door. She was waving a telegram. Look at this. Look at this. She handed me the telegram. It was just a few words and I read it. And Tabby jumped and shouted and I jumped and shouted. And when Steve got home, I got out of the way. They just hugged each other and cried. I could hear them from the next room. Not that I was eavesdropping, but you just couldn't avoid it. It was one of the best days that I have ever spent. That always gets me. Yeah. That is how Carrie was rescued by Tabby King. And the dedication in Carrie, by the way, he says, it's this is for Tabby who got me into it and then bailed me out of it. Um, (laughs) So just a little bit more about Stephen and Tabby's relationship. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're still married. 40, uh, 50 years later, mm-hmm. they've had three kids, two of whom, Joe Hill and then Owen King, are also successful best-selling novelists. Joe Hill, by the way, is like one of the best horror novelists of the moment. If you haven't read Joe Hill, nice. horror fans, you need to go find his stuff. He also cool. looks just like his dad. It's creepy. Wow. Um, okay. But, you know, just a couple other things where again tabby she's got her own career i think she was largely tasked with a lot of the child rearing you know Mm -hmm. but she's also writing her own stuff and she's sticking with steve through thick and thin and a couple big couple big incidents in his life that i think are just worth mentioning quickly Mm -hmm. one was in the mid 80s when he was really in the grips of a terrible alcohol and drug addiction she organized an intervention for him Mm. and he i didn't write down the story but i remember it pretty vividly i think it's i think it's in on writing where he basically says you know in front of all his friends and family he was very like defensive and you know Mm -hmm. and she took a trash bag that she'd gotten out of his office and just dumped it out in front of him and it was like filled with beer cans and like blood crusted coke spoons and like and he said that was the wake-up call And after that, he's been sober ever since. I want to say that was like 86, 87, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the other big one is summer of 1999, Stephen King's walking down a highway, gets hit by a van. Mm. He was actually in the middle of writing on writing when this happened. So on writing is an interesting book because the first half of it is like, here's my life up to this point. And then there's this pause. And he's like, "Um, by the way, this just happened. (laughs) (laughs) but he i mean he almost died like he was in the hospital for months shattered his hip and his leg Mm. i think it punctured his lung because the guy who hit him was like driving a van down the highway and i think turned to yell at his dogs and swerved across the road and slammed threw him up over the van i mean i remember hearing it on the howard stern show i was living in denver and i was actually driving to work at the time and i almost drove off the road because They were like, you know, the word at the time was like Stephen King was just hit by a van. Sounds touch and go. Like prognosis is not hopeful. And like Stephen King is like, I mean, he is my guy. He's hugely influential to you. Yeah. So he's in the hospital. He gets hooked on drugs again. Couldn't avoid it. Just hooked on the painkillers. So he was, and he knew, he knew it was going to happen. Knew he had to like, he was going to have to wean himself off, et cetera. At the time, he's talking about retiring. I remember reading interviews at the time where he's like saying, "Like I might have one more book in me, but I think Oof. I'm about done." 
but he talks about how when he finally decided he wanted to try and get back to work. And, he, and if anyone knows anything about Stephen King's work habits, he writes, I think, four to six hours a day, mm-hmm. like every day, like no exception kind of thing. Wow. So he was like going to try for like a half hour to see if he could sit up and write. Longer. This is probably like two, three months after the accident. Wow. So here's what he has to say about Tabby. He says, my wife is the person in my life who's most likely to say I'm working too hard. It's time to slow down, stay away from that damn power book for a little while. But when I told her on that July morning that I thought I'd better go back to work, I expected a lecture. Instead, she asked me where I wanted to set up. I told her I didn't know, hadn't even thought about it. She had thought about it and then said, I can rig a table for you in the back hall outside the pantry. There are plenty of plugins. You can have your Mac, the little printer, and a fan. The fan was certainly a must. It had been a terrifically hot summer, and on the day I went back to work, the temperature outside was 95. It wasn't much cooler in the back hall. Tabby spent a couple of hours putting things together, and that afternoon at 4 o'clock, she rolled me out through the kitchen and down the newly installed wheelchair ramp into the back hall. She had made me a wonderful little nest there. Laptop and printer connected side by side. Table lamp, manuscript with my notes from the month before placed neatly on top. Pins, reference materials. Standing on the corner of the desk was a framed picture of our younger son, which she had taken earlier that summer. Is it all right? She asked. <laughs> it's gorgeous, I said, and I hugged her. Oh. It was gorgeous, and so was she. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that got all of us. Yeah. yeah. So that is the epic oh. love story of Steve King and Tabitha King. Oh my God. Good job. Good job. You good job, Steven and Tabby. Oh man. Wow. It's also worth pointing out that they're huge philanthropists up in Maine. They're always giving money to like the schools, libraries, political causes, big Democrats, hates Trump. Yeah. If you follow Stephen King on Twitter, (laughs) he is never wanting for shit to talk about. Trump. I mean, he, I think the proudest day of his life was when Trump blocked him on Twitter. Because oh. he, like, wouldn't <laughs> shut up about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool. That's so great. And to, like, I don't know, man, to have somebody who's going to stick by you. Because that's a lot of bullshit. You know what I yeah. mean? The addiction and all of that stuff is, is, is let, me, let me pause here. I'm not trying to be like, yo, if you're an addict, you are undeserving of love. No, but it's a lot. But it's a lot. It's a lot to love somebody through addiction. Well, if anyone's ever read The Shining, Mm -hmm. keep in mind that Stephen King has said that book was somewhat autobiographical. Now, I don't think he was ever abusive the way Jack Torrance is in The Shining. Right. But he wasn't out of control. Like, his drinking problem was out of control. Yeah. Um, Even at that stage. I mean, I think he has said, like, it really started in high school and college. And he was regularly drinking a case of beer a day. Well, I mean, for him to say the thing of, like, you know, he hit those traffic cones and then decided, you know, that he was so, (laughs) that he was enraged as only a drunk undergraduate could be, Mm -hmm. to then be like, I'm going to drive around this town and declare 150 traffic cones is a yeah. shit ton of traffic cones and that's yeah that's something that yeah. somebody like in the throes of a drinking problem is going to be like this is a great idea right yeah yeah poor decision making <laughs> oh, yeah fuck. no i mean i think she dumped she dumped the trash bag out in front of him and was like i'm not gonna stay here and watch you kill yourself and, oh. and he said that was it he said that was what was like the dunk in cold water that he needed 
And I think other than after his accident where, I mean, he did, but it was like, you know, it was a controlled dependency at that point. From what yeah. I understand, you know, he, there was no way he was going to get by without morphine based drugs after like, the number of surgeries he had and yeah. everything. And it was just, but it was like worked with doctors and, you know, kind of did what he had to do to get through it. Yeah, there is. Um, I think that's a really scary thing about addiction is like, you know, that at some point something's going to come up where you're like, I need, like, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm going to need some kind of pain management yeah. through this. And I just imagine it's got to be a scary or a, or a weird place. And it's where a lot of people who struggle with addiction have fallen off the wagon or whatever. But like, yeah, that's just like, it is not a world that I inhabit. So I imagine it's, yeah, I imagine right, it has to be an intimidating thing to be like, well, okay. Well, this- yeah, when you know you have this history. Yeah. You know, like there's really no way around it. But yeah. from what I understand, like he was able to wean himself off the drugs and he's you know, managed to remain sober ever since. So it's like, you almost don't want to count that. You know, you don't count that against the sobriety. (laughs) That's really was not his fault. (laughs) Did he do any kind of program or anything? Has he talked about that? I think, I think he was in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and particularly if you read the book, Dr. Sleep, which is his sort of sequel to The Shining, although Mm -hmm. it's super different from The Shining. Mm -hmm. Um, But it talks about Danny Torrance. The kid from The Shining growing up and becoming an alcoholic and then going into Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a pretty deep dive into like AA philosophy and approaches. Interesting. Yeah. And a couple other just real quick things about Tabby that I think are just little fun, little uh, trivia things for Stephen King fans. So Mm -hmm. she's the reason why Pet Cemetery was not published for years after it was written and it became infamous as his scariest book. Uh-huh. Because he wrote it, I want to say in 1980, mm-hmm. um, gave it to her to read, like he gave everything to read. She was like, you can't publish, this is too much. So he put it in a drawer for like three years and then ended up finally only, he was trying to get out of his contract with Doubleday. So he was like, fine, here, and took it. But it had already become this, he had mentioned it in interviews, so it had already kind of become like the oh. book that's too scary even for Stephen King. And I will uh-huh. say, I think Pat Cemetery is his scariest book. Really? Yeah. Why? It well, it deals very, very want to say explicitly, but that's not quite the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. But viscerally, with the death of a child, in a way that is like you can tell this is a young father writing his worst fear. Yeah, and then it just it ends on this bleak note that just like chills your blood, and also just the imagery. Like I remember, there's the imagery of Lewis, the character digging up his son. In the, from yeah. the grave it's just it's so vivid um, okay when we're done recording i'm gonna need you to tell me the end of the book because you, okay. you know i'm not gonna go read it yeah. but i don't want to spoil it for anybody who right. is wanting to read it yeah it's it's definitely it's it's one it's probably top three or four for me Stephen King <sighs> okay books. and i think okay. it is the scariest i think it's scarier than the shining personally and then another fun little story she's responsible for the title salem's lot mm. so his whole concept was salem's lot he had rediscovered the book when he was teaching in this okay. high school English class. And he had talked to Tabby about like, what would it be like if Dracula came to America? And Tabby was like, well, I don't know. He'd probably like get off the bus in New York and then get hit by a taxi and die. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, well, that's not fun. But then, but she was like, but if he came to a small town like this, it might be different. 
Mm-hmm. And that was like the ding, ding, ding of Salem's Lot. So he literally was writing Salem's Lot to be a sort of riff on what if Dracula came to small town America in 1970s. Okay. And the original title of the book was Second Coming. Okay. And she vetoed it because she said it sounded like a sex book. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you got to find a new title. So oh he, my God. So then he tried Jerusalem's Lot and the publisher was like, this sounds like religious shit. So then he went with Salem's Lot. And that was his second wow. novel. That was that was the book right after Carrie. So wow, there you go. That's the story of Stephen and Tabitha King. Fantastic. I am going to talk about Sam Cooke and how he wrote "A Change Is Gonna Come." Nice. Yes. Uh, my sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia and Britannica. An article from the New Yorker, uh, I believe it was a 2015, called "The Unlikely Story of a Change Is Gonna Come," and an episode of the podcast "Disgrace." Just a little bit. That podcast goes into a lot of really darker stuff, but I got a little bit of information about Sam Cooke's early life from there. Cool. January 22nd, 1931, the Reverend Charles Cooke and his wife Annie May will welcome the fifth of their eight children, Samuel Cook, into the world. Sidebar, I just found this out. The reverend, like when you hear the when you hear reverend, it's it's actually an adjective. So if you call somebody like Reverend Cook, you're actually not supposed to do that. It's always supposed to be the. It's always supposed to be preceded by the. Huh. Isn't that crazy? That's I didn't know crazy. That. I never, I mean Jewy Scotty never would have known that. But. Yeah, neither neither would have Catholic Amelia. But uh, yeah, so otherwise they're ministers. Fun little fun little side fact there. Okay, so in 1933, the Cook family relocates from Mississippi, where Sam had been born, to Chicago, and young Sam starts performing gospel music with his brothers in a group called the Singing Children. Sam spends most of his adolescence singing in various gospel groups until he finally joins the Soul Stirrers at age 19. Okay, from what I understand about the Soulsters, they were kind of like a gospel menudo. Like <laughs> they were in that they were a group where the lineup of the group was constantly changing. So okay. it wasn't about like these four musicians being the Soulsters. Stirrers, there was a group and people came in and out of it. The, the group has like an 80 plus year history. Oh, wow. Yeah. So crazy. The band, along with all of its members, was actually inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2000. So long history. And like when you look at the whole lineup again, much like Menudo, there is like tons of- 400 of them or something. Yeah. And like there's there's big names that came out of the Soulsters. So during his time in the Soulsters, Young Cook is credited with writing several of their well-known songs. And also he, he sort of infused the group and gospel music with this like youth shot. Sam Cooke was a real good looking kid and Mm -hmm. the young ladies would come to the shows like really just to watch him perform. Mm -hmm. It's clear from the very beginning that Sam Cooke was something special and under his leadership of the group, the Soulsters had like, they get several gospel hits that Aretha Franklin herself described as quote, perfectly chiseled jewels. Uh, Aretha Franklin is another R&B artist who also came up through gospel music. Yeah. Well, I gotta say like, I mean, I'm sure we'll mention the movie here in a little bit but Mm -hmm. after we watched the movie the other night i have not been able to stop listening to sam cook oh yeah like i and i i appreciated sam cook before but holy shit that guy's voice yeah yeah it's just just, something else 
It's incredible. And I'll just break right here to let people kind of know what Scotty's talking about. Dear friend of ours, friend of the pod, uh, an <laughs> actor based in California by the name of Aaron Alexander. I've known about this project, it feels like forever, but I don't know if that's just because 2020 was forever. I don't know. But we I knew about this project for a really long time and it's just got released on Amazon. So uh, I was super excited and Scotty came over to watch it. It is a movie called One Night in Miami. The movie was already... Like, even without Aaron being a part of it, Aaron plays uh, the boxer Sonny Liston, I would have already been really excited about it because it was actually a play uh, first. It tells the story of a sort of imaginary night in Miami, and it is the meeting of Muhammad Ali, at that point he's still Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and, and Sam Cooke. And they hang out in this hotel room the night after after Cassius's first fight with Sonny Liston. And it is, yeah, so my little theater-loving heart was already going to love this movie. Even if Aaron wasn't in it, that just makes it even better. The movie is excellent. It's on Amazon Prime. If you don't have Amazon Prime, borrow somebody's login information. It's- do what you got to do. It's excellent. I mean, I'm not saying this just because Aaron was in it. Like, it's the best movie I've seen in... In a hot minute. Probably at least in the last year, but maybe the last few years. Directed by Regina King. Mm-hmm. Her first... It's her directorial debut. Her film direct... I can't talk. Directorial. <laughs> directorial. <laughs> directorial debut. Jeez Louise. She knocks it out of the park. All of the performers are fantastic. Please it's go watch it. It's wonderful. Fantastic. And just real quick aside, Jim yeah. Brown does have a Stephen King connection because he is in the movie version of The Running Man. Oh my God. All right, and there we plays, go. He plays Fireball. That's right. That's right. You were talking about that the other night. So, I have a real yeah. soft spot for Jim Brown. Yay. So, <laughs> anyway, um, back to Sam Cooke. Yes. Again, movie is excellent. Please, please, please go watch it uh, and tell all your friends to watch it as well. Okay. So Aretha Franklin calls these songs that Sam Cooke did while with the Soulsters, these perfectly chiseled jewels. Sometime around the mid fifties, Sam Cooke decides that he wants to branch out into pop music. I didn't realize this. That was actually a really big deal because he was a gospel singer and there was a pretty big stigma against gospel singers singing secular music. Did the stigma come from like the gospel crowd? Like they didn't like to lose. Yeah. And I don't know that it was necessarily that they didn't want to lose their singers to pop music. It feels like there was something that if you were a gospel singer, it was akin to any other role in the church. Right. Like you had been kind of called to do this thing. And that, that that's that, you know, I don't quote me on that, but that's kind of the feeling that yeah. I got. It makes that it sense. was like, you can't leave your work in the church to go sing songs about, you know, making out with somebody in a car. Right. That tracks. That makes sense. Yeah, that tracks. So because of this stigma, Sam releases his first secular pop song, a song by the name Lovable, under the alias Dale Cook. But literally people heard it and they were like, that's that's Sam Cook. Like his (laughs) voice was so distinct that they were like, that's Sam Cook. Speaking of his voice, Sam Cook had a voice that is described as, quote, his voice soared rather than thundered. Mm-hmm. And he had this like light lilting delivery that made him really like stand out in the industry. So after releasing Lovable, Sam goes to the head of the Soulsters label, a guy by the name of Art Rupee, and is like, hey, can I, like, I want to go do this. I want to go record pop music. 
can you give me your blessing? Yeah. Cook and his producer and, and Art Rupi was like, yes, absolutely. And like, he was like, go record the pop music and then went to the studio one day while Sam was recording. And I think he was singing like a Gershwin tune. And mm. Rupi was like, I mean, he wasn't like, what the fuck? Because he was a, he owned a gospel label, but he was like, what, you know, what is this? Like, yeah. and like story kind of goes that he, that Rupi thought that Sam was going to be doing stuff that was more like little Richard. Mm. And he wasn't like Sam Cooke was really kind of trying to in, reinvent himself as like a sort of second, like a, a Nat King Cole kind of right. pruner. Yeah. yeah so he wasn't like one thing about Sam Cooke, he wasn't real rock and roll. Like he was very much like velvet voiced. Yeah. Like you said, crooner. Like, yeah. Yeah. But so Ruby was like, what the hell is this? They get into this big fight. Well, Ruby gets into a big fight with Cook's producer, a guy by the name of Bumps Blackwell. And Cook and Blackwell end up leaving Art's label. Uh, The name of the label is Specialty Records. So they end up leaving when it becomes clear that Sam is like really gonna go and do like pop music, not the sort of like pop gospel thing. Right. He's gonna go do his thing. Yeah, he's going to go do his thing. As a gospel singer, Cook knew that his music was popular within the Black community, but he also saw that his fans were mostly low-income folks living in rural America, and he knew that he needed to like expand his range beyond that crowd. So he's like, okay, I'm out. But he doesn't want to do this without the blessing of his father, mm-hmm. who is a minister. Right. So he goes to his dad, he asks for his blessing and Sam Cook later says this about that conversation. Quote, my father told me it was not what I sang that was important, but that God gave me a voice and musical talent and the true use of his gift was to share it and make people happy. End quote. Mm. In job, 1957, dad. I know. <laughs> I know. Good job, dad. It's, it's, it's not quite as poetic as Stephen King's mom calling yeah. Dracula bad trash or whatever, but... <laughs> Yes, it's pretty good. So Sam Cook was actually born like his his given name last name was C O O K, and in 1957 he added the E to the end of it to sort of signify the start of his new life in as as like a pop singer. Like almost right out the gates, he hits the charts with You Send Me. I think everybody knows this song. If you don't, maybe you can play a little bit. Right here. Darling, you sent me. I know you sent me. Darling, you sent me. Honest you do. Honest you do. Honest you do. Yeah, I mean, even my, like, death metal loving heart, like, can't resist you send me that is yeah it's it's glorious and that song was actually written by him as was a lot of his music which was kind of unheard of at the time but he wrote a lot of his own stuff cook ends up signing with rca in january of 1960 and he was guaranteed a hundred thousand dollars okay 1960 hundred thousand dollars to a black r&b singer Okay, that is roughly $880,000 in today's money. And he's like not even all that established yet. So No, no, he's still, I mean, like, yeah, he's he's three years into his pop career. They're seeing the writing on the wall. 100%. So for those reasons I just listed, this is a big deal, but it's also a big deal because Cook, he ended up negotiating that he would own the rights to his master recordings. Mm -hmm. 
I don't completely understand the whole thing about master recordings, but I do know that it is a big deal. And I know that artists like who is who's been in Kesha, right? Has that a whole well, thing because Taylor, she hasn't Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Like I mean it's it's it is huge because that's like the artist. I mean, I don't know that much about it either, but like what I do know is that the artists, you know, they don't own their own music. Which is just insanity to me. If you, especially if you, I maybe understand it if you didn't write the songs, but if you wrote them, that doesn't, I don't know how that can even be a thing. I think you still get, like, if someone covers it, you still get a cut or whatever for, like, publishing credits, but you don't, like, you have no control over if it's used in a commercial or, or what. Like, that's ridiculous it's, it's a huge deal for recording artists to be able to own their own masters yeah because i know it was like it was a big deal when like metallica was finally able to own their own masters and, yeah know, huge bands like will fight their entire career to get to that point yeah it's insane to me it's their yeah. music let them keep letting me it, it belongs to them okay mm, capitalism so, baby <laughs> capitalism <laughs> okay so he goes on to record songs like chain gang cupid bring it on home to me it's a great i one. love i love that one we're gonna um, we're gonna pause and play a little bit of that one because like okay <laughs> if you ever change your mind about leaving leaving me behind baby bring it to me bring your sweet loving bring it on home to me That song, Bring It On Home To Me, actually has his buddy Lou Rawls on backup vocals. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, and of course, Twistin' the Night Away. He goes on to record all of those with RCA. In 1961, so just a year after making that deal with RCA, Sam Cooke is like, you know what? I'm going to start my own label. So he takes it a step further. He launches his own label. It's called SAR Records. And that label goes on to develop the careers of Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Johnny Taylor, a bunch of others. Mm -hmm. Another quick side note about Cook's sort of like singing and performing style. It differed greatly from the kind of like raw visceral sexuality of other R&B vocalists at the time. Mm -hmm. His gospel upbringing really really influenced his pop career and his songs always had more of like a soulful spiritual approach to sex and romance than his contemporaries. Which is where like I think like the Nat King Cole comparison feels kind of hot. Yeah. So on October 8th, 1963, Cook was on his way to Shreveport, Louisiana, and called ahead to a Holiday Inn to make a reservation. He makes the reservation, Mm -hmm. no problem. Upon his arrival with his wife, Barbara, and his, like, the rest of his group, the desk clerk gets super shifty Mm -hmm. upon seeing, you know, probably a bunch of black people in Louisiana. And is like, oh, yeah, my bad, sorry, there are no vacancies. Sam and his brother Charles are like, this is bullshit. Um, So they start (laughs) arguing with the clerk. They demand to see the manager. They refuse to leave until, like, this gets cleared up. At some point, Barbara tells Sam, they'll kill you. And Sam replies, quote, they ain't going to kill me because I'm Sam Cook. They don't get the room. They're forced out of the hotel. They're yeah. told to leave. And they pull away basically like yelling 
allegedly yelling insults and like blaring car horns and and I hope you know some fingers were thrown and I mean fair that enough if that's what they did like yeah yeah so they go to another hotel the castle motel and when they get there the cops are already waiting for them okay. and they arrest everybody for disturbing the peace the next day the New York Times runs an article with the headline quote Negro band leader held in Shreveport <sighs> yeah. Okay. So, of course, the black community was like, what the fuck is this? I also just want to make a sidebar because throughout the doing of this podcast, I frequently come across New York Times headlines that I'm like, y'all, y'all stepped in it there. <laughs> like that was, they did it during the Night of Terror. Right. There's been a couple of things where I'm like, oh, last week it was your story about Marine General Marine Major Marine General. Major General. <laughs> um, Dudley they, R. Farnsworth or whatever the fuck his name is. <laughs> yeah, and that they were, you know, they were like, they poo-pooed on the entire idea of a coup and right. just, you know, New York Times, I just, you know, just recognize this about yourself is I guess all I'm saying. I mean, they still, they still kind of stab at it sometimes, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, they're not perfect and that's okay. So all of that happens. Somewhere around this time, Sam Cooke also hears Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Mm-hmm. Released in 1963, Bob Dylan's protest song poses, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit obviously now about Blowing in the Wind. Disclaimer, I hate this song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love me some Bob Dylan, but I will say it's not my favorite Dylan song. I do not like Bob Dylan. I'm like... F- I'm really like folk music is really hit or miss to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just can't, I can't get on board with any of Bob Dylan's stuff. It could be his voice. It could be his delivery. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I, I respect it for all of its influence and what it meant to the music world, but I it's not my I generally idea. would say I enjoy Bob Dylan more as a songwriter than as a performer. And when I do actually listen to Dylan, like I really do have to be in the mood. But yeah it's not I mean, a, it's not something i can just have on at any time yeah i mean pretty much the only bob dylan songs i can handle are lay lady lay and all along the watchtower which isn't him i mean he wrote it but he's not performing it mm-hmm. so just disclaimer <laughs> that what comes next might be colored by my opinion <laughs> of bob dylan okay right. released in in 1963 Bob Dylan's protest song poses a series of rhetorical questions about peace, war, and freedom. The mm. refrain for this song, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind, has been described as, quote, impenetrably ambiguous. Either the answer is so obvious it is right in your face, or the answer is as intangible as the wind, end quote. Just Dylan, full disclosure, I am 100% going to put the song in the episode. <sighs> fine, fine. How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind (laughs) um dylan had this to say about his protest anthem quote there ain't too much i can say about the song except that the answer is blowing in the wind it ain't no book or movie or tv show or discussion group man it's in the wind and it's blowing in the wind (laughs) Okay, as someone who is actually a Bob Dylan fan, that's fucking ridiculous. Okay, hold on, because I'm not even done yet. 
Okay. So he says, man, it's in the wind and it's blowing in the wind. Too many of these hit people are telling me where the answer is, but oh, I won't believe that. I still say it's in the wind and just like a restless piece of paper, it's got to come down some. But the only trouble is that no one picks up the answer when it comes down. So not too many people get to see and know, and then it flies away. I still say some of the biggest criminals are those that turn their heads away when they see wrong and know it's wrong. I'm only 21 years old and I know that there's been too many wars. You people over 21 you're older and smarter end quote okay it's I'm, a lot i mean it's, it's a lot, lot. I, <laughs> I, I was able to follow the last two sentences maybe <laughs> but i mean one thing we can say is that blown in the wind is, is it's about blown in the wind yeah that, that's pretty definitive yeah it's it's about blow i i think that's my favorite part <laughs> is the man it's in the wind and it's blowing in the wind <laughs> wise words from what is frequently known as one of the best singer songwriters in the history of music um (laughs) anyway (laughs) anyways it's also a very like passive song it's really from somebody who's like kind of watching stuff and asking these questions but it takes off it becomes this huge this huge huge hit everybody like loses their minds over blowing in the wind you said this is like 61 63 63 okay yeah so cook along with other black musicians and performers was so motivated and surprised that such a soulful message was written by a white boy that cook himself was almost ashamed to not have written something like that himself not only was cook affected emotionally when he heard the song but he also saw that well-known folk group peter paul and mary covered the song and it climbed to number two on the charts so At that point, he saw that a song could address civil rights and also be successful. And Sam Cooke was a complicated man, like all great historical figures are. He was a complicated man, but he was was a hell of a singer uh, and a hell of a songwriter and and a smart businessman. Like he knew what he was doing in, in the early 1960s and was doing what he could to like you know, be in control of his work and his career. So, okay. So he sees the song rocket to number two and he's like, okay, there's a market for this. Cook was not blind to the civil rights movement, but he worried not incorrectly that a song like blown in the wind written and performed by a black artist would alienate his large white fan base. Right. Cook actually goes ahead and starts and, and like incorporates blown in the wind into his repertoire. And in late 1963, a musical composition comes to him in a dream. After Christmas 1963, Cook invites singer-songwriter J.W. Alexander over to listen to a new song that he'd been working on. Cook plays A Change Is Gonna Come for Alexander twice on the guitar and the two go over the song line by line. Alexander is like, hey, this song might not go over as well as your other stuff. And Cook mm-hmm. is like, I don't care. You like, need I need to, to make this song. Yeah. He explains that he hopes the song will make his father proud. Mm-hmm. Cook biographer Peter Gralnick says, quote, it was less work than any song he'd ever written. It almost scared him that the song, it was almost as if the song were intended for somebody else. He grabbed it out of the air and it came to him whole, despite the fact that in many ways, it's probably the most complex song that he wrote. Musically, Change Is Gonna Come could not be further from Blowing in the Wind. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you've heard Blowing in the Wind, which you probably just did when Scotty played a little bit for you, (laughs) um, it is real folksy. And I think it's just him and the guitar. 
I, I don't know if there's so. anything else to it. Change is going to come is, is literally the exact opposite of that. It is musically the most complex song of, of Cook's repertoire. So and it's, it's like, a, it's a lush song. Too. Yeah. Like yeah. Just the production, it's just rich. And, yeah. 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 I'm about to talk about that. So Sam Cook hands over the composing of the arrangement to his longtime arranger, Renee Hall. This wasn't new. Like the, the, the two had worked together before, but Cook hands over the song with no specific instructions for Hall beyond to give the song, quote, the kind of instrumentation and orchestration that it demanded. Mm. I feel like that's going to be so scary. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, that's like free a way rain, of saying, but do it, do it right. Don't fuck this up. Yeah, yeah, like give it its due. Cook was apparently also notorious for being a control freak in the studio. So Hall really is like, okay, I understand and accept the responsibility of of being given this kind of free range. And he actually went on to say, quote, I wanted it to be the greatest thing in my life. I spent a lot of time, put out a lot of ideas and then changed them and rearranged them, Mm -hmm. end quote. So Hall goes on to compose this thing like a damn film score. Each, Each verse is a different movement. The song starts out with this swell of lush strings, which clear out briefly for Cook's vocals to come in. And then his vocals are carried by horns in the first verse, strings come back for the second, and uh, timpani hold the bridge. Hmm. Yeah. Hall also adds in French horns to sort of delicately push the melancholy message of the song home. Story goes that every single person in the recording studio was like, this is something special. Like everybody knew and I, there were musicians that were like, I'm not touching this. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it on the drums. I'm too nervous. They were scared. And so, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they were like bringing in other studio musicians to okay. be like, hey, can you handle this on this track? Cook performed the song publicly only once. Hmm. And that was on February 7th, 1964 on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. You see a sort of dramatization of this in the movie right. One Night in Miami. The story story is somewhat dramatically told in the movie as well, which sort of, again, inspired yeah. this, my story for this week. NBC mislabeled the name of the performance, and they did not save the tape of the performance. So no live oh performances of this song exist from Sam Cooke. Just, just burned them all down. Just. Yeah. That's unforgivable. Yeah. It should have been a milestone moment in Sam Cooke's career. Yeah. But two days but two days later the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan and the oh, rest is history. Then there you go. On December eleventh, nineteen sixty-four, Sam Cooke was fatally shot at a motel in Los Angeles. A change is gonna come was released two weeks after his death. Oh wow. Yeah. I, I mean I knew obviously about him being shot. I did not know the time frame. Yeah. Yeah. The song became a civil rights anthem and is widely considered Cook's best work. It was voted number 12 in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Just a sidebar, Blown in the Wind was voted number 14. (laughs) (laughs) It's among the 300 most important songs ever recorded, according to NPR. It was one of 25 songs selected by the Library of Congress to be added to the National Recording Registry. NPR also called it one of the most important songs of the civil rights era. The song has been covered by Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, Three Dog Night, Bobby Womack, Solomon Burke, Billy Bragg, 
Luther Vandross, the Fugees, Al Green, Patti LaBelle, Greta Van Fleet, Jennifer Hudson, Beyonce, among countless others. In I 2000... Just, I'm sorry. Just, I, you couldn't pay me enough to sit down and listen to the Greta Van Fleet version of that. I, <laughs> no. I don't know who I don't know who Greta Von Fleet. They're they're like the lamest Led Zeppelin ripoff. Okay. Hipster band. Like they okay. oh. I mean you hate Dylan. I fucking hate Greta Von Fleet. <laughs> fucking I'm just okay. not thinking about him. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. But I mean, you know, it does point to like three dog night, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like oh, yeah, there I've are heard a the lot three of three dog night version. That that's a that's that's actually a really good version. And and the Al Green version is really great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody like Celine Dion yeah. did a did a cover of it for the Aretha Franklin tribute. Uh, you know, I mean, like, I don't know. I wouldn't want to touch that song. <laughs> it's not going to go into your karaoke repertoire. <laughs> it's not going to go into my karaoke <laughs> repertoire. No, no, thank you. In 2008, after winning the U.S. presidential election, Barack Obama referenced the song, saying, "It's been a long time coming, but tonight change has come to America." Mm. In the days leading to his inauguration, the song could be heard constantly playing all throughout the city center in D.C. Mm-hmm. In 2019, the mayor of Shreveport, Louisiana, Adrian Perkins, apologized to the Cook family for the hotel incident that partly inspired the song and posthumously awarded Cook the key to the city. The words, a change is going to come, are on the wall of the contemplative court at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. The museum opened in 2016, I believe. Mm-hmm. The article in The New Yorker ends with the following, quote, listen to the record today and you can hear a story that's ongoing. Cook's rough, sweet voice, blues born and church bred, beat down but up again and marching, still rings. End quote. And that is the story of how Sam Cook wrote A Change Is Gonna Come. And it is like it's one of those songs that I think I always liked the song. Yeah. But you know, it's like, you know, we grow up with these things that were 10, 20, 30 years before we were born, and they're just kind of in the world. You know, it's almost like how I felt about blowing in the wind. It was just one of those right. things that was just like out there. Yeah. So I can't say I paid like super close attention to it. Mm-hmm. I knew who Sam Cooke was. I, I liked a lot of his music, but I remember when Obama won and quoted the song mm-hmm. um brought all that attention back to the song. I remember kind of going in and really like listening to it being like holy fucking shit yeah this is i mean it really is one of the greatest songs ever written yeah it is uh it's a i mean it's 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 as in my opinion as perfect as a song can get like it is it's 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 absolutely incredible it's an absolutely beautiful song yeah and the arrangement and sam cook's voice is just i mean just incomparable i will say leslie odom jr does a hell of a version on the one night in miami soundtrack mm-hmm. he does it puts his own own little spin on it uh with the arrangement and everything but it's it's a damn it's a damn 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 good cover yeah i it's it's <sighs> yeah i i've been listening to the song kind of non-stop for the last couple of days because of it. it's my <laughs> My Spotify wrap-up for 2021 (laughs) is going to be so weird. It's going to be like fucking the Bridgerton musical, which doesn't even exist because it's happening on TikTok. (laughs) And then a change is going to come. 
<laughs> it's gonna be real like are you okay I mean, um, my, my spotify right now is real confused because it's like do you want to listen to napalm death or um i don't know otis redding because it's like it's like trying to put it together with like yeah i'm like no i'm, I'm stuck with <laughs> sam cook for now thanks <laughs> yeah. yeah oh so there's some stories that sort of inspired us for this week. Yeah, we, we decided we really, we needed to bring a little more lightness into our lives for this week. Yeah. And I just, I didn't have another fucking black metal murder story in me for the week. Thank so. God. I didn't have it in me to hear another black metal story. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, seriously, guys, if you haven't watched it yet, go watch One Night in Miami. It, oh my God, really please is. go watch it. Like I, I can't speak highly enough of that film. Yeah. I thought I thought the performances across the board were I mean, we were talking about this as we were watching it. It's like watching, you know, when whenever you watch an actor portraying a very well recognized figure, it's always mm-hmm. very dangerous because it's just so easy to slip into mimicry and kind of play from like you said, from the outside in. Mm-hmm. Um and just keep the performance very surface. Yeah. And like all four of those actors just inhabit their characters so fully that it's yeah. just, it's incredible. Yeah, it is like, it is excellent, excellent work. And I don't know a ton about, I know the actor who played Jim Brown and obviously I know Leslie Odom Jr. For anybody who like might be like, where do I know that name? Leslie Odom Jr. was Burr in the Broadway production of, of Hamilton. I know him from when he was on Smash. So uh, <laughs> um, no brag, no brag, but I've been loving Leslie Odom Jr. for a long ass time um, <laughs> before <laughs> everybody else got to hop on that train. <laughs> <laughs> but he is he's just an incredible actor and performer. He had this great so when Hamilton came out, there were a ton of pieces on everybody and and of course on Leslie Odom Jr. because he was playing Burr. And I read this, where did I read this? It may have been in like Variety or maybe it was even the New York Times or something, but he was talking about how, you know, they did, he ended up doing that show for, because it was at, like they workshopped it, then it was at the public and then it finally moved to Broadway. So mm-hmm. he'd been doing it for a bit. And for anybody who, for anybody who hasn't been a theater actor and doesn't know the sort of stamina that it requires to do a role over and over and over again. And like, yes, the physical stamina, yes, of like keeping your body uh, like primed and ready to perform a show, you know, eight times a week. But the sort of like emotional stamina that it takes to be able to go to whatever place the material I don't I don't want to say necessitates but to what you know whatever the sort of like emotional topography of the piece is Mm -hmm. to be able to consistently come back and do that over and over and over Mm -hmm. again you know eight shows a week Uh, for years it is something else it taps into reserves into your reserves in a way that like it isn't the same as physical stamina, but he was yeah. talking about, I think the song wait for it and how he had a run there of, it may have been as short of a week. It may have been longer where he was like, I just, I lost it. Like I lost the, I lost the connection to it. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how his instinct was to like, fo- like he wasn't, emo- he wasn't like internally connecting with the song. Right. And his instinct, I think, was to like kind of push it and to force it and to sort of, you know, lay on the sort of external technical Mm -hmm. showing of emotion and that he was just like, nope, I'm just going to like relax and like whatever this song is today is what it is. And like, it was just, 
it wasn't like he was like, eh, whatever. And was like, you know, coasted through it, but he wasn't holding himself to like, oh, I have to get to this emotional place. Right. He was kind of like easing in, taking the pressure off a little bit. Yeah. And that just resonated with me so much because that's Mm -hmm. so much of, you know, the way that we work and sort of our ideology for acting is this, you know, allowing things to happen. And if a performance is emotionally, like that's very much a label, but like emotionally different today than it was yesterday, as long as it's still like rooted and grounded in truth, that's okay. And it was just, yeah, it was just super cool to hear somebody else talk about acting in that way. So I have like massive, massive, massive respect for Leslie Odom Jr. And like I said, I thought, I mean, he was fantastic. I think it's the first thing, because I haven't seen Hamilton, so I think it's the first thing I'd really seen him in. And then the other actors, I'm forgetting their names. Uh, One that I was very impressed with, I think because the character is one maybe people know less about, but actually the guy who played Mm. Tim Brown. Um, And that is Aldous. I'm going to look it up while you're talking. Okay. Um, Aldous Hodge. Aldous Hodge. Okay. I thought he was fantastic because I'm being the B-movie fan that i am like jim brown Mm -hmm. he was a huge football star at the time of that the movie is set but transitioned into being an actor became very well known for like action movies black exploitation films um like i said i first thing i kind of remember him in as fireball in the running man but i've just had this soft spot for jim brown for a long time also played for the cleveland browns which is my dad's hometown team so hey go Cleveland um, you know Malcolm X is so distinctive the way he talked Muhammad Ali is so distinctive Sam Cooke is so distinctive and I think Jim Brown is somewhat less so but if you've mm-hmm. watched a bunch of his movies the way I have like mm-hmm. I know Jim Brown's facial expressions I know the way you know his cadence of speech and everything and this guy would just say Aldous Hodge that's his name mm-hmm just captured it so perfectly and so subtly. And like I said, without any mimicry, but just inhabited this character so fully and really brought Jim Brown, because Jim Brown's kind of like, you know, he's known as like tough guy, action guy, football player, but, you know, this really smart, sensitive portrayal that I just thought, you know, brought shades to the character of Jim Brown that like your average movie fan isn't going to know. Yeah. The other actors of the main four, there are obviously some other people in the movie, but the movie centers around the main four. Kingsley Ben-Adir plays Malcolm X. Eli Gorey plays Cassius Clay. Aldous Hodge is Jim Brown and Leslie Odom Jr. is is Sam Cooke. One of the things that after we watched it on Friday that like left me thinking for a very long time, and it was one of those things that I was like, If you know anything about anything, you can tell that this was directed by a woman because these four characters get into some pretty intense conversations and they like, they talk about some some pretty deep stuff that I think in the hands of another director, we would have watched, you know, 90 minutes of four dudes screaming at each other Mm -hmm, but we didn't like one that's that's a that's a huge props to regina king because i think she she directed the shit out of it and two also to all of the actors that right you know wanted to explore how these men might communicate with each other without resorting to screaming yeah who apparently Um, they were all in real life friends i think i think the meeting as depicted in the movie is fictionalized but they did all know each other in real life mm -hmm. and one thing that I thought like just to piggyback on what you're saying is like you know there are these explosive moments Mm -hmm. where they do go at each other Mm -hmm. but they're so you know they come and go and they're uh, really because they they're really earned exactly because they lay back so much and don't push it don't melodramatize it 
then when those moments happen, I mean, it's jarring, you know, and feels real yeah. and visceral. And, yeah. And I, I do yeah. mention real quick as we're talking about this movie, also the screenplay written by the original playwright, uh, Kemp Powers. Uh, yes. Kemp Powers. Something. Yep. I didn't know anything about him. I'd, I hadn't even really heard of the play. And apparently he's mostly known for this. And then he's worked on Star Trek Discovery, which I find is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then is now moving on to being a writer and director in his own right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just the writing is fucking fantastic. Like, yeah, it's... Like the dialogue is unreal. Yeah, um, it's excellent. He yeah. also went on to, did he co-direct and co-write Soul, the new yes, Pixar movie? the new Pixar film, yes. So go out and support that as well. You know, let's let's sort of support, <laughs> like, movies that aren't a bunch of white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, nothing against, but, you know, it's been like a century of that. So, you know, we just, the standards for female-directed movies, movies that have predominantly non-white casts, mm-hmm. um, all of that stuff, the fact of the matter is, is that it's just harder for them. It's harder for them to get made. It's harder and, for them to get like distributed, all of those things. So go out and support it. And this shouldn't need to be said, but it probably does need to be said. Like don't support it like it's homework. Like you feel like you have to go watch it because like no, to go get watch your it woke it's points, just a fucking good yeah. It's just like it is a fucking incredible movie. Like I, it so I've good. watched I've watched it twice. I d I don't think I told you but I watched it again after you did yeah, Yay. It's, it's. I mean, it's it's one of those like I teach screenwriting, and it's going to be one of my touchstone movies from now on. Nice, particularly yeah, for it's dialogue a, writing. It's a really, I'm really, really. I can't wait to read the actual play script and to do do that because it's a. You know, I believe the entire play is just the four characters. I think there's a couple. I think there's maybe one or two other characters that are Malcolm's like bodyguards, I guess. Mm-hmm. Also, another thing that I thought was super, super interesting and, you know, props to, what was his name? Kingsley Ben Adir, who played Malcolm X. Something that I have not seen. It was just like, there was this really beautiful, vulnerable side to his Malcolm mm-hmm. X that I had never I mean, you don't even really seen. get from Denzel Washington in the movie Malcolm X. And Denzel Washington's great. Yeah. I prefer this take, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because like you said, it was so vulnerable and so human. You know, taking these larger than life characters, it's what I thought the movie Selma also did very well with um, Mm -hmm. Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King is take Mm -hmm. this larger than life iconic character that it's really hard to humanize because we've turned them into an icon you know yeah and really be like no here's the damaged struggling person trying to figure this out yeah in a very human real affecting way it's, yeah there is i do have one big gripe though about the movie Ugh, what <laughs> it's it's i i really and it's probably as much as anything because it was aaron i just, i wanted him to get like a couple real good licks in on, on in Muhammad, that fight. yeah yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> But if anyone, sorry, spoiler <laughs> alert, Muhammad Ali wins that fight. Yeah. Um, Aaron was also the fight coordinator on it, right? He was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great, so. great job. Great, great Sony Liston. I just want, I wanted you to get your due, just like a good, just like uppercut. You know? Yeah. But, I mean, because I know but, I got it. I know you got it in you. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but we realized whatever, like historical accuracy, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's an excellent movie. Uh, so like, good. Like we've already said. 21 times please go watch it please go support it and if you do and you have social media like post about it i think can tag everybody who's in it and i think there are, you know there's 
the, I believe there's a one night in Miami hashtag, do all that stuff because I, for one, I'm definitely excited to see more from everybody who is involved in this project. Absolutely. All right. Well, all right, another, well, another long one. <laughs> there are your two stories and a movie review. Um, <laughs> and some, uh, I think, frankly, uh, unwarranted Bob Dylan hate, but you know, <laughs> we'll leave that one. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, was having, I was having a conversation <laughs> with somebody who I love and respect so, 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 so much. And he was asking the question of who's the best, who's the best singer vocalist ever and he as he is wont to do you know was like i like i would throw in a vote for bruce springsteen and then he was like bob dylan and i was like i i might give you songwriter but if that's, that's like i cannot i cannot accept bob dylan as, as the best singer it, like you cannot have a best singer list that is not going to include freddie mercury aretha franklin and i think aretha franklin was probably on his list but i was like do not talk to me about bob dylan until you acknowledge no, freddie mercury i mean i love bob dylan but let's be honest like vocalist that is not as strong suit no and that <laughs> mad pick springsteen over dylan if i if you put a gun to my head well because springsteen's definitely got a sound i just feel like i don't i don't know yeah i'm just not a, i'm sorry guys i'm not a big bob dylan fan if if you are you know good job <laughs> <laughs> good for you you and everybody else <laughs> please don't try to like convince me on this don't like send me songs i've had 40 some odd years to get to with it and yeah and i i, yeah, it's I like, just it's like me with the shining i still get messages from people being like i can't believe you don't like the movie of the shining it's like no it's fine not, it's fine for us to like different things yeah yeah it's okay i'm just gonna spam you with uh bob dylan songs for the rest of the night <laughs> <laughs> You're just gonna You'll do that until your... I until I block you yeah. <laughs> across all channels. <laughs> and that was the end of the weirdest thing podcast. <laughs> Thanks everybody. It's been a great twelve episodes or whatever the hell it's been. What is this episode, BT Dubs? I think we're up to like fifteen or something. No, that's impossible. Hold on, I'm checking. Well, we're I I changed it to season two. Yeah, our I know. Break. Okay, no, we're at, oh, last episode was, Fanka Roosevelt was 13. We should have done something special for lucky number 13. This is our, well, you were not far off. This is our 14th episode. 14th episode. Yeah, and if Scotty proceeds to spam me with Bob Dylan songs, this will be the last episode. The last episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thank you guys. So as always, go ahead and subscribe rate review yeah write us if you guys can this this sounds like homework and i don't mean it to this sorry this is me being bossy but if you are so (laughs) inspired please write us a review uh like don't get us wrong we love we love all the five-star reviews that guys have given us i'm I'm sure we know we personally know every single one who every single person who's given us a a review up to this point but like you can leave us reviews too that'd be cool um unless you're gonna say anything mean yeah yeah i don't (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to hear your your mean thoughts. Keep those to yourself. But um, if you have nice things to say, <laughs> if you have mean thoughts, you can you can email them to me at weirdestthingpodcast at gmail dot com because a I probably won't check my email very often. <laughs> It'd be Amelia will never check that email. So. Yeah, I don't even have access to it. So listen, I'm just fragile right now, guys. So just like, you know, be gentle. Yeah. Um, all right. And on that note, we'll see have you next week. Day. Bye. Bye. Back down on my knees. Oh.
But I know change gon' come. 